Hello, and welcome to episode 331 of the Crate and Crowbar, PC gaming podcast recorded on the 9th of July, 2020. I'm Marsh Davis, and I'm joined this evening by Alex Wiltshire. Hello. And Rich McCormick. Hello again. Hello. Again. There's been almost no worthwhile news this week. I mean, uh, Valorant has uh, detailed the costing of uh, some of its skins. Would you like to hear about that? Yes, please. What's going on with the skins? Well, they're selling skins uh, in a bundle, four skins, uh, for (laughs) £100 for you to buy. How many skins was that again? Four. Of the skins? Four skins, hundred quid. <laughs> Although it's actually a hundred dollars if you buy it in American money, because the tiering of the amounts of Valorant points that you need to buy is such that you can only get the enough points to purchase the skin bundle if you buy at a hundred pounds. What are these skins? Are they extraordinary? Um, they turn your guns into dragons, apparently. Hmm. So there you go. That's. That's the video game news this week. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it all started with horse armor. How far we've come. Yeah. Actually, there was another thing, uh, which is al- almost interesting. Did either of you see the um, Assassin's Creed Valhalla leaked video? No. I saw, it was, I saw, I saw that it leaked. There's an- I, I did actually notice there's another one got leaked. Does it actually have any footage in it? I mean, they, they had the thing with the Xbox announce when they were saying it's going to be gameplay footage and then it was just all cutting yeah no this is gameplay footage uh i mean apparently it's about half an hour uh or, or well at least one of the leaks is about half an hour and the new one uh is seven minutes of a boss battle with uh, a demon goddess apparently which is and the reason i wanted to talk about it i haven't actually watched it but i have to say i'm a little bit i'm a little, just a tiny bit disappointed like I always think, I always that is your natural like, state, Martin. Like, <laughs> no, indeed. But like, I, I, I'm always disappointed when people are enthusiastic, uh, superficially about something that I'm really enthusiastic about, and then I look closer at their enthusiasm, and it turns out they're enthusiastic for a completely different reason <laughs> for something I find. So, I mean, it's, it's the, the whole thing about Assassin's Creed is this, you know, this look back at uh, exciting periods of history, and then just to just to put a demon goddess in the middle of that right. is just, it's a bit of a, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't find that exciting in the same way that the best parts of game of Thrones are the parts where all the magic is peripheral to what is the, the human drama, the human politicking. And as soon as magic and dragons and stuff comes to the fore in those books, they become kind of rubbish really. Um, what we have to remember know. though is that history is written by the winners. So maybe demons were around then. <laughs> See, <laughs> well, twenty twenty has certainly proven their ultimate victory over the rest of humankind. So, I mean, Assassin's Creed is not exactly. I mean, there's some history bits, right? But there's not exactly that history. Like you do. I mean, famously, you end up beating the shit out of the Pope and chasing an apple. Of I mean, the whole thing's pretty. I don't know. The demon goddess isn't a particularly big heel turn in my mind for the series. It seems like it was always kind of demon goddesses yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah, I know. I know. I shouldn't be uh, uh, surprised in the in the way that I am, but still, I don't know. There's there's just particularly that era is is a is a thing I'm really excited about and interested in. And there's just there's it seems whenever these sort of things get announced, I'm just like, oh gosh, and I immediately start you know writing my own sort of headcanon about the the amazing uh, historical 
dramas that they could unpick or get in, in, entangled in. And then they just ignore all that stuff. And it's all about, you know, being able to dual wield and and, and, and demon gods. And, well, they always end up just taking all the historical figures from the time, putting them all in the same town and making them all give you quests for fun. Like Benjamin Franklin making you, like, <laughs> drive a tank. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that it started with oranges, didn't it? Because um, that was the one that, that that there was a there was an add-on for it, which had you battling Egyptian gods and, and whatnot. And then that mm. was expanded in in uh, which was I don't know what Odyssey, yes, orange, oranges and Odyssey, mm. yeah, where you're kind of properly up against uh, mythological stuff. Yeah, I agree because I would definitely be much more up for beating up people called Athelbold and Athelstan. <laughs> yeah. Apple Bert, <laughs> Apple Red, all, yeah, Alfred, all the, all the, all the yeah, all the apples. They've got it coming, those apples. What a bunch of idiots! That would be good. I would like that. How do you like them apples? But as a, as a <laughs> uh, there you go. <laughs> that is good. Uh, as uh, as a, like a statuesque, uh, wonderful, you know, sort of example of, of physique of this kind of um, blonde. Um, uh, Viking, it would be a bit disappointing to kind of beat up these stunted English people because they'd all be just diseased and kind of withered. It'd be, you know, <laughs> what kind of a foe would that be? The other, the other thing that it just seems it's fairly well. I guess you can draw a through line between that and God of War, like God of War being the let's do Norse, mm. let's do all the Norse gods, and then sharing the same development time, and then being we're doing Norse, we could do all the Norse gods as well. <laughs> Yeah. Where do you go from here, though? How do you go up? Because, you know, like, you're right, because the Assassin's Creed series has escalated enormously. Where do you go from mythological demon gods? Maybe I should go back down again. Yeah, that's what they'll do. They'll just go incredibly mundane, yeah, where you're kind of really stuck World in War some II. muddy village. Yeah. Actually, Assassin's Creed <laughs> World War II would be quite weird. Hull in 1975. That'd be That's so what good. I want. Yeah, yeah, during some sort of um, uh, uh, rubbish strike, you know, no <laughs> getting collected. Yeah. You've got to sort out the um, you either no, you'll you'll be on the side of the strikers, wouldn't you? Uh, the kind of the rubbish. Or you'd be trying to kill them as well. You'd have Philip Larkin and uh, Arthur Scargill <laughs> as your question. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. I hope. I hope. Um, wow. I hope uh, the members of the team who aren't haven't haven't left in good disgrace uh, <laughs> listening to this. Wow, what have you been um, playing this week, Rich? Uh, I've been delving back in the mist of time, uh, and I've been playing Red Alert, the remastered, reconstituted. Oh, yeah. um, Did you play it the first time round? Yeah, plus I played me and my. It's, it's a nice heartwarming story. Me and my dad used to play a lot of it. Uh, and then it got less heartwarming because he was like, right, well, I'm playing it now because I like it more than you do. And he would take the computer over and play it a lot. Uh, and you just hear the dulcet tones of, of monster tanks, mammoth tanks, sorry, just shooting people for hours on end. Um, but it's it's one of those games where, you know, when you're a kid and you, well, I guess I was kind of mid-kid at that stage. But when you're that old and you think, oh, my God, this is so hard. I'll never beat this. This is impossible. And obviously pre well, not so pre-internet, but pre-my easy access to, to game facts or anything like that, not understanding how these these missions were completable and finally doing it eventually. I did complete it when I was when I was younger. 
but I remember being pretty hard and very unforgiving. And I was like, oh, I must have been a stupid child, not really understanding how games worked, <laughs> armed with all this knowledge I have now. And I'm still stuck on Mission 12 of the Soviet campaign. It's fucking nightmarishly difficult. Like, How far is that through? Is that so towards, I think it's right, 15, from, from recollection, I think, this, I say recollection, I've also been Googling it because I failed it genuinely about nine times at this point. Like, I think there's 15 missions per campaign, and there's the Soviet campaign. It's always more fun because you, get, you do get the mammoth tank. And, um, yeah, the you have to do this thing where you have to conquer one base on land and then conquer an island base. And the island base is kind of fairly well, I say fairly well defended, really well defended. And there's five tech labs on, enemy tech labs on one on the mainland and one on the island, four on the island. And then you've got to get into the chronosphere and capture the chronosphere in the middle. And the chronosphere is like surrounded by AA guns and turrets and pillboxes and walls. So, yeah, genuinely now I must be upwards of, of probably 10 hours of wasted time on this one mission because the first time I did it, I ended up accidentally shooting. I bought, built a cruiser after capturing one of the allied uh, seaport like mm. boatyard things, and it immediately shot the chronosphere and the whole thing exploded. So I had to reload that after an hour and a half of playtime. Then the next like three times, my tanks that I'd rather for the island like tickled one of the tech centers and that just blew up immediately. So I had to restart oh. the whole thing again. And then the last time I was like, right, I've done it. I've got three engineers into the, the tech centers, got them all sorted, ready to go. I can now attack the chronosphere and then didn't realize until that point that there's like a trip wire. If you get any anything, including the engineer that's going towards it, over the strip wire, the chronosphere was self-destruct ahead of time. So I lost time again there. And it was just, it was, I don't know whether it's frustrating because I have the memory of it being frustrating when I was like 12 or 13, or if it's just mm. genuinely very frustrating still now. But it was very, very frustrating. It sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> is I mean, is that your sort of, uh, is is are these hallmarks of a, a sort of the yesteryear of gaming that have since been surpassed by other RTSs? So it's interesting because, like, if you think I was thinking about this afterwards, I was like, the in terms of RTS campaigns, there's a couple of temples, but there's not really that many since then that have been okay. Here's my RTS campaign that is like thoughtful in terms of design, or even just like has any real kind of you know particular main mission design there's a lot of you know sandboxes your supreme commanders and, and that kind of thing and great skirmish games are really good fun for that and obviously a lot of online games as well starcraft i guess mm. you know starcraft games obviously had the, the three of them had starcraft 2 the three of them had excellently kind of pace campaigns warcraft 3 as well but i i still so i am whinging a lot about this one mission but it is a very neat still it's quite a neat like here is your set of resources here is what you need to do. You've got to combine the two to, to get a possible outcome. And there's, there's quite a big variance in what you can do as well. Like in previous missions, I, I failed one of them once just by being beaten and then uh, completely went the other way and went much more for air superiority instead and then won that one. And I was like, okay, well, that here's all that choice that I like in games. You get, yeah, here's your resources. How do you want to spend them? Because I remember playing a lot of, at, you know, at 12 and 13, playing a lot of skirmish mode where you just can basically just have infinite money to a certain extent and just end up rolling the enemy over with the tank rush or even not the tank, the opposite of the tank rush where you just build a shitload of tanks over like two grinding hours and then just when you feel like your blob is big enough that it can't quite fit on the screen, you roll it all over into the enemy base and just cackle. <laughs> but this is kind of the, the, the neat way of doing it. And it, it's, 
it's interesting because it is it feels quite modern in some ways in that you have you have a problem and you have a solution you need to try and make the two fit but it also feels very there's been a lot of player like comfortableness making that's not the right word uh, <laughs> i know what you mean over the like 10 15 years 20 years since like people are less willing to let the player just you know, as i have done waste three four five six seven eight hour and a half long games in a row on a minor technicality so i don't know it's also really tricky to tell because i am heavily heavily nostalgic for for this game it was like one of the very first games we bought our family computer we got one very late we bought it from um tiny i think the old pc shop mm. and we came back oh. with a big box version of red alert and tomb raider and then we didn't i wasn't allowed to play either of them for like a year because when you put the disc in it said installing direct x and the one thing that my parents remembered the computer salesperson saying to them was just bear in mind don't ever install any direct x on this computer so why I don't know. I still don't know. <laughs> I waited until my dad went out and installed it when he was out after like a year of feeling like you know, it was going to blow up the, the family computer. And then finally ended up playing Red Alert and that's when he, he got more into it than I did. <laughs> I had a copy on my... I, I bought myself. So I'd, I just left university when it came out and with with money from my first job, I bought myself a laptop and this was the game that I bought on it that actually ran and uh and it was the first game i also played a pc online game on and i thought that i was fairly good at it because i played single player and you know god knows whether i really was or not but i thought i would do okay and um in my first and only match in that game um uh because i think i don't know it must have been some sort of did you ever play online uh back in the day this game rich i, I didn't know i think I think it was too daunting at that time trying to, like, you had to find, I guess they didn't really have, well, maybe they did. I don't know if they did server browser at that time or whether it was just a He was in the game. Connection. Yeah, I don't really remember. He was just in, in the game. But it was um, it played within this tiny little um, window, presumably because, it, I don't know, it just couldn't run any faster. It might have been my computer. might have been the way it was set up. Anyway, it, the, the view of the map was just minute. And um, the other player... I thought I was building up my, you know, my base, and it was all good, going well. And the, the other player did just some, you know, smart strat on me. Ended up attacking me from the rear. I was completely destroyed. I had no idea how I could have avoided it. Didn't know anything. Couldn't see anything because of this tiny window. And never went back. Never went back. <laughs> Maybe they were hacking you. That's how you got a tiny window. It wasn't actually meant to be like that. <laughs> Maybe it was. Anyway, I've taken the same attitude to all of my uh, online uh, play on all games. If I don't win in the first game, that's it. Over. <laughs> it's it's interesting to see because like I played I played a lot of StarCraft and you know and that came out like 2010 2011 kind of time. Playing a lot of that online and kind of thinking uh, you know my artist experience of Red Alert was the first one I'd really properly played um, and got into and it wasn't much more of that kind of, you know, don't attack me, I'm building my base. I want my base to look perfect and neat and I want to build all the walls around everything. Mm-hmm. The enemies come and blow up the walls and that's ruining my fun. I want to, want to build 30 tanks and then oh, maybe I'll do 10 more and then 10 more and 10 more. And then you just, you, you build what you want. It's like a, it's a bit like kind of playing like SimCity rather than playing like an RTS. And then 
yeah, playing StarCraft and things like that, where you are very quickly turning the resources into material, and it ends up being a very transactional and efficient game of what can I get in this time for my money, and you know, see the micro and the macro kind of side of that. And I was like, wow, this never really happened in in older RTS games. And then I realized now playing Red Alert, it, it very much does. You can, you know, you can build a little force that will do quite well. It's a bit more attritional. You know, a lot of heavy tanks generally does the job just as well as a very neatly constructed force. But it does have that kind of, like, there's a lot of interlocking parts. I can only ever really, I could only, before playing this, couldn't remember the full suite of, of uh, like, things you can make. But now I can actually see the purpose in them, like mine layers, V2 rockets being super useful and that kind of thing. So there's, there was this, you know, I was just probably too young to kind of really rock it at the time. There was this kind of interlocking layer. The other thing that has absolutely stuck in my brain, I was talking about this with a friend the other day, but the certain barks and sound effects you get in games that have just, just burrowed your way in. It doesn't matter how, how many years have passed since the last time you heard them, you can still like recite them automatically. Red Alert is <laughs> absolutely rammed full of that for me. It's the, the engineering, like engineering, affirmative. I still, <laughs> I still walk around the house saying that to myself. And I did before I played the remaster. <laughs> it's how you move from room to room yeah, my wife hates it <laughs> how did the cutscenes uh, uh, um, come yeah. across these days this is the one with Tim Curry isn't it uh, that's, I think that was in Red Alert Come on, Red Alert 3 this is oh, okay. uh, it does have it's got um, I can't remember her name Natalia the, the uh, like Stalin and his kind of aide slash assistant slash from rapidly promoted um, love interest as well. And I remember watching mm. that, those cutscenes as a kid and being like, oh, this is a bit a bit saucy. But then they kind of, you know what you're getting really in it? It's so, there's got this whole mythos about the FMV in, in the game that you kind of expect it to be shocky. But it's not It's not as like over the top, obviously, as the Commander Conquerors with, with Kane and Nod and all that. But it's still... Very silly still, after all these years. <laughs> How does it l- look? Because I assume they've done some sort of interpolation on what would be heavily pixelated graphics to make them embiggened for modern resolutions. But does that does that look as often these things do slightly melted and shit? Or So again, this is it's kind of a bit reductionist because it's just nostalgia speaking for a lot of this. But I, I you, you go into it and you're playing on the updated graphics. And I was like, oh, this looks like it used to look. You can press spacebar at any time, and it switches back to the old graphics. And when you do that, you're like, "Oh God, that's how it looked." But I was, you know, I was, I was seeing it the other way, I guess, from the time. It looks neat. It looks fine. They all look, all the all the things look slightly weird, like they used to. They always had slightly weird profiles that didn't quite look. They had, they have something distinctive about them. They didn't look like what they were, like the. The light tanks didn't look like tanks, really. They looked like little kind of bumper cars. <laughs> and the heavy tanks always had two like black spots on top that looked like eyes as well. So they were kind of cute. <laughs> so have they? They haven't redrawn anything, right? They they are using the original sprites, but they aren't have been through some processing to make them bigger. I I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Presumably, that's that's how you can flip back and forth between the two. Um, I don't. I genuinely don't know about that one. But like, they do look mightily similar so i wouldn't be surprised if you basically mm. just smooth them off a bit like it, it's much more pixely in the original mode and it looks it looks smoother but it's still very much obviously 
true to its its original source. It's not. It's a remaster rather than kind of a reimagining. I, I do really like the ability to kind of flip back and forth. I mean, I, and I know a set of games have done this. The remaster version of um, Monkey Island did it as well, didn't it? Where you could, you could kind of hop back and forth between the original graphics and this one. I mean, it's a it's a fun curio, but I don't think I'll ever use it after after the first few times of going. Oh, that's really nice. That's really fun. Mm -hmm. It's funny also because the obviously the pixel graphics were initially designed. I mean, not to look. They weren't. They weren't. Uh, they're very rarely resed down from some sort of perfect version. So, like that, actually, Red Alert probably was a model that was then kind of resed down, wasn't it? I can't remember how they made these ones. I think they're probably three D renders, aren't they? That have been um, t turned into two D sprites. Yeah, maybe. There's a lot of kind of direct stuff in, in the cutscenes. So they have all obviously the the very the kind of tongue in cheeky like character cutscenes that were done like movies, and then you've also got these these interstitial bits where you you see submarines or, or planes shooting at, at tanks on the ground and stuff like that. And they were using 3D renders, and they do look very similar to what you actually get in the game. And there a lot of them are actually the, uh, the unit. And this was in the same the olden days as well, but they're the unit like cards that you click on to buy stuff. So. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they have just been ported over from that and used in the cutscenes and then ported over to actually pixel art as well. Because there are some weird, even even more at the time, there were some weird decisions in terms of, you know, silhouettes and stuff. They became very obvious what they were, but they, they don't look like the thing they are. What's the... Um... What's the sort of the end goal of this project? Are they Are they going to redo the remaining red alerts? And re-release them. I hope so. Um, I mean, Red Alert Two was again. I probably got rose tinted glasses. That feels a lot like further along. Feels maybe like it doesn't need a remaster. But I'm sure if I actually played it now, it would be it would be heavily needing a remaster. But that you know that was the kind of I realised as well that that I, I'd crossed some wires in my head. And the first Red Alert was this strange mixture of quite bow-faced in terms of the military side and the difficulty and, and completing the missions and the, the silliness of cutscenes. But yeah. the Red Light Tiger, absolutely. That series does give itself over to complete uh, nonsense later on, right? I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, in a good way. The psychic Dolphins, yeah, in the Red Light yeah. 2, 2 or 3, and then in 3, Yuri's Revenge, when you get like the, is it the schoolgirl robot at one point as well? Or is that 4? Oh, yeah. 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 There's uh, parachuting bears at a certain point as well. I mean, that, good I, innovations. That was too far. It went too far. <laughs> <laughs> it did. It definitely gets silly. And you felt, I don't know. I mean, it felt like at the time that that Command and Conquer was their was their excuse to go a bit sillier with the, the post-apocalyptic stuff. And Red Alert was there. We're going to hew closer to to reality. But by the same token, like I'd say. Like the the whole idea of we've got Einstein, he's going to go back in history and kill Hitler, and then instead of Hitler, Stalin becomes a new big bad, or at least from the Allied perspective, is is I guess still pretty pretty wacky sci-fi stuff as well. It wasn't exactly yeah. like you know military military war games or anything. Are you um are you in it for the long haul? Then are you going to power your way through this one incredibly obstinate mission? Oh yeah, the way I play games is is absolutely that. Like if if someone just knows at me. There's no way that I, I'm going to let this thing let this thing lie at all. Like, <laughs> I've got to be here. I know. I like this is the thing. I, it's not. It's not a question of me going in and being like, "How? What do I do? What do I do?" It's just a question of don't click on the wrong shit at the wrong time. You idiot. 
I've done this so many times now. I'm like, I just, because, you know, by an hour and a half in, after attempting it for the third time that week, I'm just like, oh, for God's sake, be over now, please. But, <laughs> but it's just pressing the wrong things at the wrong time. There are some other fun missions, actually, as well, in it. Like, surprisingly, they stuck with me in, in a very long career of playing RTS things. Like, the, the one where you're inside the reactor and you get given a, a small group of... Uh, engineers and soldiers to try and clear things out and that's you know the very distilled thing of like here's your resources here's the enemy do what you will with them kind of thing and there is a, a slightly more structured approach to that in order to do things properly but i remember playing that as a kid and being like oh wow this is this is really exciting and it's still quite exciting now like it's still got that innovativeness that a lot of rts things don't where you know most a lot of rts campaigns historically have just been okay well we'll put you in a thing build a base go and do the thing you've done in every other mission so far maybe with one new unit this time i I can't think of that many rts games which have really sort of bespoke incredibly structured missions which are easily differentiated from each other in a kind of dramatic way starcraft ones are yeah there's there's a few that are kind of stick with but they you know they tend to be older or they tend to be things i remember like uh company heroes with is it the ken bridge own can one hmm. and they you're reading about that they it's a brilliant mission and it really is like a multi-stage thing and it sticks with you but they they absolutely like killed themselves to do that like that that was the tentpole mission again and it was just hmm. like a lot of the rest of it was kind of didn't suffer from it necessarily but it, that was the mission that they really spent ages on so it turns out the answer to how to make a an rts mission really good is the same as it is in other games where you just design the shit out of it for ages and polish it and polish it and polish it until it's is really good, whereas you know, in RTSs, arguably a lot of people kind of a don't have the time to do that with the development cycle, and b a lot of people are going to be playing either online or the skirmish modes anyway. So they really I think there's a tension, isn't there? Because you know that was the yeah. central criticism of the like the the, the Redler and even the StarCraft approach, which was there was this total difference between the online and skirmish modes and the and the campaigns because the campaigns ended up relying on gimmicks that you'd never get to play anywhere else. Like, right. you know, they'd yeah. introduce units that you never ever see in, in any other mode or or situations that just don't match up all to create a dramatic feel, which the systems didn't really support in and of themselves. Like, I don't know, I, you know, that that um, memorability of, of those missions, you know, and I really enjoyed the the StarCraft missions, actually. I've thought the StarCraft 2 missions anyway. And, uh, you know, I like, I enjoyed those those campaigns. But um, but I also see that by not situating them totally systemically, you kind of, you're making a bit of a wobbly tower of a game where, you know, a lot of the enjoyment doesn't quite exist in the way that you might want it to in the rest of the game. Yeah, you've got the trickiness. Of, and StarCraft is a good example of that where, you know, they the the multiplayer is the big part realistically of it but the single player is really good because obviously blizzard have such resources in order to do that but they they start off kind of teaching you what the multiplayer is through the single player but then through things like you know you keep branching paths for for every unit and you can kind of make them good at something or good at another thing and sometimes those the roaches you can I think you get the choice between like burrowing or yeah yeah they're completely different and you kind of think yeah. I'm really good with roaches like I'm going to go for a roaches build in my first online game and then like oh these aren't these aren't anything like what I'm used to these aren't my roaches yeah <laughs> it's definitely that kind of 
that kind of thing is tricky to do because yeah they, they do have a limit to them like you're only going to play starcraft campaign probably once maybe a few more times if you're really into it but you're gonna you know most of the resources have to go on on the, the multiplayer side yeah because that's what is going to keep people coming back and there's there's a few a couple of heroes too had some okay missions but it didn't have anything like the can thing um and i guess this was probably the dichotomy between dawn of war one and dawn of war two as well like dawn of war one mm-hmm. being i mean i love the dark crusade the necron campaign where you were basically just a total sandbox thing where here's, here's a planetary system get a foothold in each area defend it and then try and conquer the whole thing and that was just you know you had a base on each corner of the level and you had to either defend it or seed it or choose not to defend it, but it was complete sandbox or it just a set of skirmish missions. And when Dawn of War 2 was very much more, here's a roller coaster yeah, we're making. Here's a story sign, yeah. Yeah. And they're both, both, you know, viable in different ways. I preferred the first because I like base building stuff, but the two had its charm, obviously big charms as well. Are you going to jump in on um, the remastered Red Alert online? See if they've got, I mean, don't know if it even supports it, does it? I haven't tried it yet, so there's your answer on that one. Uh, <laughs> I don't. It's not been that kind of game for me so much. It's very much more of a comfort game. I also had to stop playing StarCraft because I got the same problem I have with with Dota, where it's just like if you lose, you feel sad. If you win, you feel like you need to win again, and that's it. There's never any kind of <laughs> nice dopamine hit anymore. So when I realised that, I was like, right, I'm gonna put these down now. Yeah, it is interesting that uh, the I mean, designing for two incredibly different solutions. When you know you you need to make this uh, robust sandbox game that is a preparation for the completely free form multiplayer, but at the same time make a, a memorable single player campaign. I don't really know how you mesh those two things together. I guess the, <laughs> the answer seems to be just shitloads of money because the only people that really try and do it, you know, the Call of Duty's of the world and people like that, where it, if you have essentially two, the time to have two, the time and the resources to have two development teams, one working on the single player right. thing and one working on the multiplayer thing. But you've got Blizzard who did it and then like Activision did it with Call of Duty as well, but they, they can afford to just park two different teams on it. Trying to juggle both at the same time would be. Yeah nightmare in terms of balancing and, and mm. just just actually spending time with stuff as well you need to have hundreds of playtesters yeah weirdly i think i mean I, I don't know if you guys agree with this but i think it's probably an easier solve for first person shooters than it is for something like an rts where the the allure of of the rts is in this sort of self-driven building which should if it's if it's rewarding and good offer you sort of multiple ways to do things um, and to sort of limit that in single player and still make it rewarding seems harder than it would be in uh, a first person shooter to take the same sort of weapons that you ex- use in multiplayer and and fit that into a sort of more prescribed campaign. I think it's like I think it's in the fact that the also in the fact that the um, like I, I think that first person shooter multiplayer and single player modes feel so much different to each other. You know, you're you're shooting. You know, in single player and a FPS, you're you're shooting enemy soldiers. Like Call of Duty is a totally different game. Like you've got the same movement feel and the same guns, presumably, and the same settings, yeah. but you're playing in a completely different game um, across multiplayer and, and single player. Whereas in RTS, right. you're ostensibly playing the same game, and I think that's 
like where a lot of those tensions exist and a lot of, yeah like you said like a lot of the, the the challenge comes in in kind of making them both feel in independently um or make them in the first place and then also making them feel independently kind of viable and worth it yeah i guess it's tricky as well because if you have a single player thing like you can't you can't really i mean i guess starcraft does do this in kind of some way but it's very difficult to disconnect maybe easier in a shooter to disconnect what you have in a single player game from the multiplayer game you can't give someone a gun in the multiplayer or in the single player that then functions significantly differently either more powerful less powerful whatever in the multiplayer without feeling kind of without having to feel slightly short change i mean i guess yeah. on the tail end mm-hmm. obviously the damage it does i mean call of duty does this obviously where playing it on harder difficulties enemies take more bullets to take down than they actually do using the same gun in multiplayer but then you do kind of need to give players the same for training purposes but also just for the satisfaction purposes as well so if they end up in a situation where they they feel like the thing that, that they did enjoy in one of the modes doesn't feel the same in the other mode it feels horrible yeah yeah i've had a similar kind of experience with um one of the games i want to talk about this week which sort of seems kind of like this has been my main problem with uh with the genre in general but like a personal problem with it um this game called um cards with a k so k-i-a-r-d-s um and it's a, a collectible card game sort of a hearthstone or magic alike but themed around the first around the second world war which is kind of a weird, yeah. which is a really strange setting. It's quite a lot, like there's lots of sort of slightly odd things about it. But mm-hmm. but the, the the hump that I get with these games is I can play the, the tutorials modes and almost all of these games have some kind of single player way of playing, whether you're up against AI or there's like these sort of weird little campaign um, sort of modes in them as well. But the jump from going... F- from playing against AI to playing against real people is just, for me, it's like a, it's a chasm. I have no chance of getting across. Like, you know, because, (laughs) because you're kind of going up against people all of a sudden who have decks that they've thought about and considered and they understand the cards and their relationships. And, and you go in there and you just feel an absolute idiot. And it just, for me, personally just feels utterly hopeless and i'm not particularly competitive person like i don't want to win so much as just have a nice time (laughs) i don't i don't have a nice time at all and like cards i'm at that point where to get to to continue to get out anything out of the game i have to start playing against um real people and the one game i did play against a real person i got completely trounced and they were nice as well they were kind of sending the little auto messages you know i don't know what language they were in but you know how you've got like in hearthstone you can click these pre pre um predetermined messages which are presumably uh, translated for whatever language you're playing in and they, they've been really nice you know they said that they made a mistake except for i'm pretty sure that wasn't a mistake at all and i did make a mistake and it really was a mistake and then they killed me and um <laughs> but um no. but yeah like cards um i want to talk about it because cards is also a um it's a it's it's really interesting theming where, um, you know, normally with um, collectible card games, they're just resolutely fantasy based and you're playing cards that become monsters. And, you know, there's a sort of sense of total unrealness to it all that, um, that, that just that makes the abstractions of cards 
work in some ways but this one uh, when you play a card like there'll there'll be battalions like named battalions in armies and you're going to be playing factions and the factions are the soviets and the americans and the british and the germans um and it initially feels slightly odd in the same way that I mean, actually you know in the same way that it feels odd to play a first person shooter based on the second world these days because you know, should you be having fun? You know, these are real battles and the extra abstraction that you get from playing a card game based on them is also a bit odd. Um, and it also, uh, but at the same time, it's theming itself on, um, you know, sort of cigarette card style, you know, uh, mm. comic book style kind of. So a lot of the pictures I'm pretty sure were sourced from, from you know, Pulp Fiction and cigarette cards, you know, of the... I guess fifties, seventies. I don't know. Like, yeah, you know, so that sounds cool. It and they and they look great. You know, it's like jeeps kind of jumping over stuff with kind of below, you know, with explosion behind, and you know, it's kind of exciting, you know, and and, and interesting and and verd, you know, like really technicolor, technicolor war, which kind of, but at the same time, you're playing in a three D kind of arena setting with kind of like a luger. <laughs> like a photorealistic Luger there. And when you click around cards, you get a little history lesson and there's kind of, you know, um, Call of Duty style sort of uh, triumphant and yet somewhat mournful music playing as well. So I don't know what I'm meant to be feeling. I don't know what I'm meant to be. Is what good or bad? You know, that's all I need to know. Am I meant to be enjoying this or not? And it's a card game. <laughs> and initially, like, it feels like it's a, um, it's a sort of, it, it feels very like, oh, here we go. Like each card, uh, the, the you know, unit card is exactly like Hearthstone where it has an attack value and a defense value. And when they get hit, they lose health by the, the amount of attack that the, they got hit by and all that kind of thing. But actually, five minutes later, it was really already demonstrating some, like mechanics I've never seen before in these kinds of games. Um, and in this one, uh, there are two things that really mark it out. Um, the first is that your mana, um, which is named something weird in this one. I can't remember what it's called now. But anyway, mana, which is, you know, the, the currency that you get per turn to in order to play cards normally. So each card costs a certain mana to be able to play it. But also in this one, you need to spend mana on doing stuff with the cards you've already played. So if you've put a tank down, um, you've got two actions you can do with it at any time. You can um, either attack with it or you can move with it. I'll explain move in a sec. Um, but those will cost you, in almost all cases, mana. So you're playing off, do you want to put more stuff down on the table or do, or do you want to save that mana to actually use the stuff you've already got down on the table? So that's like interesting decisions you know, right from the off. Um, and the other distinct thing that it does is that um, rather than having your set of cards on the table against the opponent's set of the cards on the table, um, uh, it has a front line. And so if the front line, which is in between the two sides of cards, uh, if it's unoccupied, you can move your cards into that front line. And for as long as you hold it with your cards, um, the, the other player is only able to attack those cards in the front line unless they've got planes or artillery which can fire further it's sort of like mm. 
it, it all makes very intuitive sense. And it means you get this real push and pull as you move on and off the front line. Um, the fact that your mana is being stretched over uh, attacking, moving, and uh, playing cards means that the battle is much longer than a normal Hearthstone or Magic match. It's yeah. um, And they feel attritional in an interesting way. Like you don't get these. I haven't had, you know, it's, I'm sure it's quite possible, but I haven't had these sort of games against the AI, AI or whatever where, you know, sort of a strategy is played and it's all over. Um, in this one, you know, things kind of wobble and tear to, teeter and i think that i got the advantage and then i have to fall back and, and then regroup and it's it's feels really interesting um the way you're describing it there i mean just the the verbs you're using makes it sound like it is actually quite a good metaphor for the kinds of conflicts exactly uh, yeah is it is it more of a is it it's, so it's is it less gamey than say other card games in its effort to kind of make that metaphor more complete uh i mean that's a good question because it's like um, I mean, it's sort of when you play, it's a totally abstract card game with cigarette, you know, with sort of cigarette card art on it, you know, um, with when you're playing with numbers and rules. So, no, but the effect of those rules is that you feel you're like you're in a in a battle, like you feels like you're falling back and it feels like it's, it really does capture the theme, but totally abstractly, like you know, there, there aren't any rules, you know, sure, artillery can fire from your kind of your your auxiliary line to your opponent's auxiliary line, but that's, it doesn't feel like it's sort of, uh, that's, a, that's a sort of a grab at a theme. It's just a, it's an abstract rule, which just makes sense because of the theme, if, if that makes sense, that distinction. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I, it's, I really admire that. That is like, you know, cool game design where abstract stuff coalesces into something that feels really naturalistic. And it's really, it, yeah, it's fun. Does it have that kind of like the, the, the CCG, the, the Hearthstone kind of thing where you do have these, you know, weird abilities? Like, you know, can you play Robble like a Murloc kind of thing where he, he does something amazing to all of your characters and they, yeah, those more damage than they would do normally, or is it is it kept quite straight? And you know, no, it's not like the, the so it's, I haven't played that much yet, but the factions are quite distinct from each other. So um, the Soviets are very much about having um, cheap, cheap to cheap to play infantry, which um, which some of which well, the, the cheap to play in infantry, which. If they're powerful, they'll do damage to your HQ. Your HQ is the thing you're kind of defending. You know, when your HQ gets down to zero, then you lose. It's game over. Um, so, so like that's thematically sort of you know meaningful because the Soviets were all about huge numbers of of, of soldiers who are pummeled into into war against you know and you know who all died. You know, that's feels feels like it's expressing the soviet sort of story um the american side is about uh raising mana so like they seem to have quite a few cards which increase your mana for the next turn and that kind of thing or just increase it turn upon turn upon turn um, but everything's quite expensive um i'm not i haven't really got a, a feeling for what the um the british one has yet but you know they 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 do have um, distinct rules that su that support their theming, but they're all very 
recognizable CCG constructs, getting more mana, um, cheap to play, but but potentially damaging cards, you know, those sorts of things. It's a smart, it's a smart game. But I'm, you know, as I said at the start of this, I'm I am at the stage where uh, I've got to start making my own decks. And it's a free-to-play game. And it hasn't quite got the polish and allure and the kind of the the self-confidence in itself that you see in things like Magic the Gather, uh, Gathering um, uh, Arena or Hearthstone, where they just give you loads of freed stuff and they're kind of quite clear about, you know, how you get new stuff and things. This is... It's it's much smaller project, um, and while there are loads and loads of cards and things, it doesn't have that sort of glossy. Oh, I know exactly what I am with getting free packs, and it's going to give me lots of free packs, and I can get them. You do get free packs, but I'm not really sure how that all works yet. Um, and buying sets, you know, buying sort of sets is kind of massively expensive, so I haven't really dipped into that. So I'm not really able to compete on any level. But there is. I was just going to also mention the. Um, there's there's a campaign mode, so a single player kind of game, um, and there's only one free mission that I've been able to play, and this is another example of the theming working really well, where it's set it's like the story it's a set of uh, a campaign set in North Africa, and it's the, the mission you play or the battle you play um, starts off with your Axis forces, so you're the Italians and the um, and Germans and up against the British and also the French. And it starts off, and this is apparently historically correct scenario, there is this dug-in group of um, uh, um, French forces uh, who historically played a really important role in slowing down the advance, enemy advance. And they are there in the front line at the start of the game. And they're really annoying because they've got a high defense, not very high attack, but a high defense. Before you can do anything at all, you need to get rid of them. You know, it's just a, it's a really simple piece of theming, which expresses the historical context. It's cool. Does that, I guess that's the the question that kind of ties back into the RTS discussion as well, but is is that, I'm trying to think of any game, like along these lines from, you know, the RTS to the the MOBA to the CCGs kind of things where they have a proper training space for you that you will actually learn about how not just how the game works like not just what do buttons do and what what do i do to make make win happen but like here's the kind of decks you're going to face here's the kind of players you're likely to face here's how this is is the current meta (laughs) yeah yeah like that definitely isn't here you always have to do that leap i mean i've tried to do it a few times in, in a number of games like where you have to bite the bullet decide you almost have to make the decision ahead of time I'm, I'm going to play this or I'm going to try and get, if not good, but competent at this. Therefore, I'm now going to open seven or eight wiki tabs, hop on YouTube, sit mm. through something I don't understand for the first 20, 30 minutes of it, and then finally try and try and play along with this to try and get it. But you need to, it's difficult because, yeah, you need to almost make that decision to play something before you've played it properly. Yeah, I'm going. this is going to be my project. <laughs> this is yeah. going to, yeah. But then, you know, I don't know whether you can do that in game or whether you should do that in game, because, I mean, first off, like practically, um, you in order for a game to be good of this type, you need a shifting meta. So you don't want to teach anybody an established way of playing because that should just shift and change, you know. And And even if you do teach a simplified version of that, 
do you have to then you have to go update all of your tutorials if you change the cards you know maybe something unbalanced you know which changes a load of builds or you know viable viable decks or maybe you know you've had to take out that card entirely and now you know suddenly all your tutorials don't mean anything but then um you know should you should you teach anybody that like are you is there a that there's a sort of a problem if you're making it too accessible because if it's a good game it has depth and there's still going to be like a big yawning chasm dip, 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 you know between the skill of somebody who's just gone through the tutorial and, or as a newcomer and someone who's been playing and applying themselves for weeks and weeks and there should be you know they they should feel that that the game reflects their greater skill you know it's an insurmountable problem, <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, you've also, you've also got the fact that I guess any any effort spent on tutorialization after you have a player base, which is at the point when you can kind of go back and would have to, if you're going to update per meta, you'd have to update tutorialization based on on that. Exactly. You're already your player base then is is at the point where they're like, well, hang on, give us we, we've got the, we've got the basics. Shut up. We want we want more cards. We want more yeah. stuff. Don't don't waste your effort teaching newbies how to play. Yeah, because they're all going to have that deck. It's like. You've got the starter deck, and everyone knows how to deal with the starter deck. The starter deck is quite perfectly good, but the problem is the rest of the player base knows exactly its strengths and weaknesses and just blasts out of the water. So maybe the question then is how you how you stand out in a crowded thing in order to get... Because it's almost like you just need to kind of wait for a player base before... If you can't do the tutorialization to make the onboarding process smooth, you have to... I guess the ones that have hit successfully, you know, the Hearthstones of the world, the Magics of the world, kind of had a big head start or a lot of money behind them. Because it's tricky to to find examples of it. Maybe aesthetics does a lot potentially in this thing. It's interesting because they get things like um, yeah, Netrunner did well with a fairly small, like a starter base in, in kind of the real world, obviously, rather than rather than the computer world. Uh, right. But that, but that, I guess, does have its its own history in in an existing property as well and is cool looks cool because it's all cyberpunky and stuff and does already have the engine behind yeah. it it's wondering whether it's you know as a new studio or at least a smaller studio whether it is viable these days to do you know that kind of crossover free to play-esque yeah thing. definitely well i think also like with something like cards you you know it's player base is going to be way smaller so i mean the answer one of the answers to you know, making that jump from, you know, into playing against other people is to do it, you know, on rankings. And But the thing is, you need a big player base for for it, you to find people of similar rank reliably, you know. So and if your player doesn't, you know, you get the chicken and egg problem, you know. Your game isn't good enough or big enough to provide good games to people so they don't play it, so the player base doesn't grow, you know. Yeah. The answer is kind of in order to be successful, you have to be successful. Exactly, but I think another side of it is, um, you know, if you can make your game uh, show what's happening in a really sort of succinct, clear, you know, sort of aesthetically pleasing way, um, that's good. I think that cards definitely suffers a little bit from some of that um, detailing where, oh, why did that one lose health? And you kind of, oh, you know, you've got to chase back through all the logic of the cards that were played and, you know, what happened. 
Um, I think that something like Hearthstone is probably, there are all these little animations, auxiliary bits and pieces going on, showing you what happened as a result of a, a particular play. Um, and I think that, that making all that stuff really legible really helps. It's not a great name. No. Cards. No. doesn't really speak to its theme, does it? No. It's got a K on it, so it's like German, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and Germany's only only to do with the war, so, uh, so that's an obvious, um, yeah. obvious relationship. Martin, what have you played? I've been playing uh, Mortal Shell, <laughs> um, which is a, a, a very much a Souls-like game. Uh, in that it's uh, its own advertising it advertises it itself as a as a sort of souls homage to souls um it's in open beta at the moment um on the epic game store so anybody can play it wow i watched the video after you talked about it today and i was like i can't think of very many things on this planet that are more up my street than that yeah i mean it is uh it, it knows what it what it is and what it wants to be and who it needs to appeal to i and, and it's uh, uh, I think all of its presentation uh, so far has been, I mean, even if you think it, there's maybe some cynicism to making something which is so in hoc to an existing uh, world or property, I mean, it's it's done extremely well. <laughs> um, and I quite like what I've played with some reservation. I have to say it's, it's, it's hard to judge what it will become based on the, the 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 content of the demo um and I, I wonder if the the more the further it gets through development the more obvious it will it will diverge from uh the promise of the of the souls games just because the the team is incredibly small and um what they can achieve is presumably more limited but um what it currently is uh is a tutorial uh followed by two remarkably small uh but very dense environments a sort of mucky looking forest glen inhabited by also mucky looking incredibly sour um, gangly bandits gangly bandits um, gangly bandits and uh followed by the, the most ghastly claustrophobic crypt um where there's, there's these unpleasant vampiric vampiric ghouls who uh, wait to feast upon your neck and uh, um, is patrolled by these Clive Barkerish undead beings who are skewered with like a dozen swords. And when they see you, they laboriously kind of extract one of these swords from their torso and then <laughs> lob it at you. Uh, and eventually... Um, uh, they uh, they tear off their own heads, uh, which turn into explosive, poisonous um, uh, projectiles um, <laughs> in a sort of final act of grisly defiance. And it, it, uh, like the monster design is absolutely fantastic, and they've definitely got superb character architects, and they really do evoke the the sort of the the best um, low slash dark fantasy aspects of of the Souls games in this sort of horrible. Um, medieval nightmare um and you know uh hacking through this the, the handful of assholes that it throws at you across the course of uh, an evening will give you a taste of the game's combat system and its particular spin on the life death cycle which is so important to those games you know and the economy and progression etc um it's all shorn of like the larger context at the moment but 
what what's there I enjoyed. You you play as um this mouthless, genitalless, sinewy, biped, naked thing, uh, which is seemingly made out of plaster of Paris or something. And the game's key innovation is that uh, you, as this creature, you have the ability to possess corpses, or at least specific corpses the mortal shells of the title and these aren't these aren't just like enemies that you slain and can jump into these are named characters that you come across slumped against a, a rock face somewhere and they represent um characters with backstories but also character classes essentially which uh, each have their own strengths and weaknesses and extensive upgrade trees and the beta um you encounter two of these things uh, one of which is your basic knight in armor fella with a big two-handed sword and uh, a sort of rogue character who turns into a puff of smoke when he dodges and he can um interestingly they don't have the weapons aren't tied to the characters so the rogue character can wield the other guy's sword but it's not it doesn't do uh, i mean intentionally doesn't put a lot of stats in your face so it's not clear to me if there's a particular penalty or, or advantage really in mixing up weapons and shells um but you i mean you also find uh, this this hammer and chisel next to the rose body and uh that sort of suits his more fast frenzied attack style which is actually how I've played all of the Souls games so far. I never, I never did the sword and board thing in Dark Souls. I always went, I always played Dark Souls like people are meant to play Bloodborne. Basically, <laughs> I, I always go for the kind of quick weapons and sort of uh, max stamina, so so I can basically roll continuously around uh, around enemies and then stab them in the bottom. Um, that's that's my thing. <laughs> and interestingly. Uh, I mean, this is this is the, the uh, expresses a sort of dissatisfaction to some extent with the 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 FromSoft games as they've progressed, uh, culminating in Sekiro, which I, I like, but I, I think it's still my least favorite of those games because they've become increasingly focused on asking people to parry uh, and asking people to observe specific timing challenges and. The earlier games are not really about that, or at least they they have a, a, a breadth to the way that you can play them that you don't really need to engage with that challenge at all. Um, so I've I've never I don't think I've parried really more than once or twice in any of those games cumulatively. Hmm. Um, but parrying is a big thing in obviously it's a huge thing in Sekiro and it's a big thing in this. But I'll, I'll get back to that. So um, anyway, the shells are a cool a cool approach to character classes. Um, and there's like you can switch between them uh, at the beginning of any new area, or it's well, at least in the demo. I don't know if that's just like a contrivance for the demo's purposes. Um, but the other, the other big thing is to like to compare it with the the sort of famed Soulsian mechanics is the way that death works in the game, uh, which is more like Sekiro's than any of the other Souls games. Which is that uh, when you die, you're Mr. Jimny, no genitals character, sort of gets expelled from the shell you're in, get blasted out backwards. Um, and you're like super vulnerable when you're in um, your your naked form. Uh, and if you get like clobbered again once, you'll probably die. And then you have to start the area again and all the enemies will have respawned. Does, and you'll, does, your, um, does your the body that you play in kind of uh, just lie on the ground like a 
discarded plastic bag. Sort of. And it, it actually kind of freezes in its struck pose. Um, okay. and, uh, and so you, uh, while you're sort of out of your body, um, you can... Uh, time sort of gets paused for a moment after you get hit, which is really cool because um, having been punted out of your shell, you can you then have this like second or two to reposition and maybe get behind the enemy who who nobbled you in the first place, which is like this sort of neat um, thing. And then, but you can also re-enter your shell um, simply by pressing A on it. I'm not, you might want to do that after you've you know removed the uh, immediate threat but you once you've entered your shell you get your full health back straight away um but there isn't a second chance then if you get killed a second time it's you know level start but it's it's just this sort of uh it's yeah it's basically a, a second second chance uh at getting through a single level um which makes it quite difficult to sort of parse how like health management works because you need, even though you're, inc you take a hit from any enemy, it's really bad news in this game. But you also need to factor that against, you know, when you're making those kind of risk reward calculations that all these games make you do, you also have to factor in the fact that you have another hundred percent of health hidden away behind your current your current state. Um, but in in other regards, like the, I mean, it's it's, it's a bit more punishing. There's no, um, there are healing items found in the levels like mushrooms and interestingly they respawn over a period of time even on a single run um but there's no estus equivalent um so there's no health which, health gathering at all um so we, well there's, there's mushrooms which replenish health over time you can buy food and things but you don't have so estus in the souls games uh to explain for people who never played them is like a flask that you have with you at all times which contains a number of healing drafts and that refills magically basically every time you restart a section of the game um, and that is not here so you, you don't have anything like that and um, uh, which would make the game a lot more challenging were it not for the fact that healing is tied into combat in a sort of Bloodborne slash Sekiro mashup um, Basically, uh, your parry system is th is the main way in which you replenish health. So deflecting a blow and then getting a riposte heals you an incredibly large amount. Um, and it's... Although the, I, I got away with being pretty shit <laughs> uh, throughout the demo, it's clearly going to be a pretty essential thing for you to learn to do. Um, and as with all these games, I find that the parry window just not particularly clearly defined. I had a little trouble working out when I'm meant to be parrying, whether it's at the point of collision or before. Um, it's not not clear from the attack animations when, or, or your parry animation when you're meant to be pressing it. Um, but I had uh, I had better success with the game's other pseudo parry, which is that you can harden at any point. Uh, essentially, at the press of a button, you you become you're like the plaster of Paris suddenly freezes, and you become this sort of statue, and uh, you deflect any attack which lands on you in that state, mm -hmm. which sounds like OP, but it's got a cool cooldown, so you can't just spam it, and it only works to deflect in a single attack, so you, it won't save you from combos. Um, but it's it's a really cool idea, and you can like consume items which then enhance your next strike with the 
with so at least some of the damage that you would have absorbed when you were hit in your hardened form. And you can also harden at any point and maintain your momentum. So you can just like wind up this heavy attack, suck up uh, a blow in your hardened form from your enemy, and then immediately follow through with your strike. Um, and it's uh, it feels really cool. I don't know that it's it's interesting enough to hang an entire combat system off it, but it's um, but it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. The kind of hanging a lot. Of, you, know, you can go through that and kind of tick all the boxes as as you called out. Like the the one and, and resurrection is obviously with Sekiro, and then you've got the the Bloodborne getting health back stuff as well. I mean, I, it's all good for me because these are all my favorite things in the world. Like it's interesting as well the the parry stuff because I, I think. I, I played Dark Souls a lot and I always played it very, very not Sekiro as you did as well. Like, but I, I played it even more like I always played a, a bowman. I always had a bow and I would absolutely just game the system. Like if, if you can't, if you're a big man and you can't get through that small door, I'm going to stand on the side of the small door and I'm going to keep <laughs> shooting you for the next hour and a half until I win. And that was, you know, I remember interviews in Miyazaki and he was just like, yeah, well, if you want to play like that, that's, that's why we set out like that. And that's why, they refused to patch things like the the door in the forest that led to the, the yeah. people who would you know jump off the edge and give you souls because they're like, well, you're using the game against the game. The game's using itself against you. That's that's kind of fine. We'll let you do that. Uh, then Sekiro, I took a very long time to click with. Um, and I got it when it came out, and then mm. fairly soon afterwards, well, my son had been born, so I didn't have much time, and I felt bounced off it. I was like, oh, this is the first the first Souls game, the first From game on that kind of. Mm trajectory that i really don't like came back to it like earlier this year and was just absolutely enamored with it when i suddenly got the parry timing suddenly clocked it and then it right is it i mean it's very much an anti-cheese game right yeah well in comparison to the dark souls don't look at my playthrough please but yes it is <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, there's a lot of bits in it that are, are difficult to cheese and they're, they're possible to cheese it and I, you know the cheeses in that are they're very I guess there's an argument between like a glitch in the cheese and Dark Souls, you know, when I remember spending hours and hours and hours early on, I reviewed Dark Souls back in the mists of time. I was playing it before it ever went online and I was playing it solo with a few people in, in the offices in future in, in Bath in the UK. And we were all desperately trying to muddle our way through. And then when one of us kind of realized that you could open this door and get through to the other side and there was this, this very high, for us at the time, high level enemies that would drop a lot of souls and you could farm them by standing behind a little staircase next to this next to this giant ledge that led to nothing and they would something anyone that fell off that would die and if you stood at the right place on the staircase they would take the path up the stairs rather than along the side of the staircase to get you try to attack you bounce off your head get stun locked and then fly fall to their deaths so every <laughs> 10 minutes or so you could harvest about ten thousand souls which was enough at the time to really start ranking you up in the game not only was it completely inexplicable to what was happening, but also there was no no messages on the floor, no other players anywhere, no one leading you anywhere. And obviously, yeah, everyone who's played Dark Souls knows there's not really like the most... If you were to follow the natural signposting of the level, you go to one of the, the mid-late stage games in the Tomb of the Giants. It's nightmarishly difficult and pitch black. So it's really the game kind of sticking two fingers up at you and laughing. Yeah, I don't feel too bad about... Um... Uh, cheesing Dark Souls because I mean Dark Souls is at times trying to trick you into doing things which are too difficult yeah. for your character to even do. Um, I don't know. I, I think I think for me though, like I mean, obviously this game has like uh, 
there's a, a spooky masked lady, which is very, you know, very in keeping with the, the 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 general theme of these sort of games. And it's uh, she she essentially acts as your bonfire, uh, so you can restart the level by talking to her. And there's you know there's an economy that you'd expect from these games. Tar seems to be the main currency. Uh, I don't know if that's going to turn into a, a metaphor for something. Uh, <laughs> not yet clear what. Um, and there's a man who will sell sell you things in exchange for tar and lets you pet his his fucking weird looking cat. Um, and there's other stuff which allow you to upgrade your individual shells, and you can upgrade to those things. And I, I don't, re- I mean, all of that stuff feels like it's sort of like checklist things that appear in Dark Souls. I find that I find it most obvious when games take that stuff from dark souls that i don't really care about that stuff like i mean i think i mean it's all it's none of it's bad like it all obviously needs to be there to, for the for the game to to function but the thing that's attractive to me about the souls like games is not really any of that stuff piecemeal yeah it's like uh it's the sum of the parts that really makes those games in isolation the fact that you you use bonfires or some other metaphor for a check, checkpointing system or that you know, when you die, you lose resources that can be recollected when you make it back to your corpse. Those things have like have become this sort of mechanical rote, uh, such that they're almost collectively a genre. Yeah. But and, and those things are cool, but they don't have resonance for me when they're separated from the world of those games and all the other systems which they intertwine intertwine with, both both like in, in fictional terms and as like the structural devices for the games economy and advancement systems and like i don't know whether all that stuff is going to gel in mortal shell yet because it's just shorn of the larger context um and i'm not just talking about law of which there is just a, a kind of threadbare amount in the in the demo but you know um and also the law you know it's about it's about trust as well to some extent i mean whether whether the law in propping up these systems feels just like it's over there to excuse the mechanics, which are now so famous in and of themselves. Um, or whether they are some actually kind of elegant. Uh, I mean, the, the first, the, the, the thing about dark souls is that you can't really bottle that lightning again, yeah. that the kind of revelation that these game mechanics were actually in service to something, which was a completely coherent <laughs> fantasy universe in which the metaphysics of that universe was entwined in the, in the, in everything, in everything that you do. Mm. And I don't know that you can just click your fingers and do that again, at least not using the same mechanics. Yeah. You could, you, um, you know, and- particularly as, as those mechanics, you know, and particularly as those, that metaphysics was actually, a commentary on the way the game played as well, you know, and to yeah. just take on the same mechanics is to actually to do something that the game that the, the mechanics were originally criticizing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Dark Souls is, you know, the whole thing is that this is a cycle that will happen again and again and again and again. Like it's, it's futility. It's a consideration on all like, as well as being a super fun game. But it's like a, you know, consideration on futility and the fact that you're stuck in the cycle and all these things that games. So there you go. And people will use these mechanics over and over again. It was showed the futility of it, and we're all locked into a cycle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah. It's that. Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing where I've, I've had the same question. Where like I, I love, I love Dark Souls. I love the series. I love Bloodborne. I love Sekiro as well. And it, it's just I love Demon Souls before it too. And it's I played other games in the Souls like Soulsborne kind of genre, and I bounce off every single one pretty much because. I mean, it's really tricky to 
to work out why necessarily. And, and I guess that's definitely some of it. You know, the, the it's such a nebulous term, but the idea of world building. But not it's not just like I've written the, the story Bible and here's every possible person in the Bible and here's every person, here's their interactions and here's their mum and here's their dad. It's not the Tolkien-esque approach of here's 70 family mm. trees, the X begat Y begat Z. But like, it's the idea that the world is, is built rather than just talked about. Like everything is, as you say, fully in service to everything else. Like it, it, you can imagine a world where, you know, you see these undead praying and crawling around everywhere and you know that could be you if you give up on the game at this point and you move on. And you know, you see these corpses of things, and it all—it's done with such a light touch. It makes sense, but you see the design is hand in so many different places, and he, you know, the whole thing about him having thought up Firelink Shran and then like walked mentally to all the other places, and that's why the map, actually, apart from Orlando, kind of glues itself together perfectly. It's because these are, this is a place rather than it, it's a world that was built rather than just kind of mm. world building as a concept. And this. Other games, you know, for various reasons, don't have that. And maybe because they're trying to chase an existing genre rather than kind of doing it naturally, or maybe because they just haven't got the time or the eye or whatever. They don't have that. But like, I, I was realizing this recently, like thinking about well, my favorite things to think about Warhammer. Like, I love, I love forty k, and then I love, you know, by, by extension, I like playing, I like playing war game, the forty k war game, and I love that whole sphere. And then, you know, friends are like, oh, we should play you know, other war games. And I'm like, eh, I have zero interest. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not the, the system necessarily that I'm into. It's yeah. the thing that I'm into. It's the yeah, world. I, wouldn't, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm a man-child, but I definitely only want to play a war game on a table which involves um, my little gribbly friends, space marines, <laughs> Um, robe cyber monks. That's you know. That's all I want. I don't. Yeah. yeah. If you made it Second World War, I'm happy to play Second World War themed stuff, themed things in uh, on my computer, but not on the tabletop. Yeah. Even like you know, I'll, I'll, if someone else is super up for playing, I'll play with you and stuff. But it's like it's not this kind of all encompassing thing that that you know, that Dark Souls became for me, where I would you know go onto YouTube and start looking up lore videos, and I, I would be trying to work out. Why is this person? Why is this corpse specifically died here? And read the uh, item descriptions. You know, all this stuff is done with such a. It's either done with a very. If you look at it through my lens, it's done with such a beautiful light touch. Or there's fuck all story, as a lot of people will say, and it's all just wanky bullshit. <laughs> like some people will definitely argue that in that case, and it's just an excuse to have a Western fantasy world through a Japanese lens. That, that hangs together very well. But I think that's also great about Dark Souls is that you can play it as either and it works as a, a very well-structured combat game, not as tight as something like you know, Sekiro later, but mm-hmm. the combat works on it by itself. But then you've also got this, this huge depth and huge kind of internalized history, not just in, again, not just in the, the actual written history, but just in the way that the world hangs together as well. I think it's that. I mean, I think it's very physical as well. The success of those games is is literally in the way those environments are built and uh, intertwine, uh, because there's a, there's just a rationality. I mean, it might be a mad fantasy world rationality, but there is a rationality to where things are, mm. and uh, that that just uh, at an unconscious level maybe just makes you feel more rooted in in that world. Is there the same sense um, in Mortal Coil? No. Obviously it's a small area, so you're not going to get that much of a thing. But 
Well, I mean, this is the problem. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's hard to say how much of this is just because may, maybe these these are environments that have just been plucked from a larger world and then tied together in an awkward way for the purposes of testing them um, with the public. But they are very small environments to the extent that they feel like they are small because they are worried about uh, loading times and they are separated by loading screens. Um, they are not interconnected in the way in, in the seamless way that the souls uh, worlds are Ooh. and there aren't there aren't like vistas you can't see out of the environments that you're in Ooh, at least dear, these two dear. environments um if i was and so, if i was making this game i think that that would be that would be up there among the things that i'd be worried about that i would want people to think to know that this world was cohesive and that you could look mm. out over it I would ensure that the the demo would include something like that. Yeah. Really, I guess you've got kind of the, the extreme of, you know, if you're really super ultra confident in your combat system, you go the like Devil May Cry route and just have your fairly small built arena kind of things. In which but that's an arena show. game. But that's like a, yeah. that's an arena game. It's not an adventure. Yeah. I don't know. And also, I don't really know how, I mean, obviously, this is being uh, beta tested in order to continue to balance the game. Um, but it's so it's either incredibly well thought out or not well thought out at all. Um, uh, the two most useless conclusions one can draw from it. Um, <laughs> because, uh, because so Dark Souls, part of the difficulty of that game is 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 thematic right it is about uh, this repetition and eventually giving up as you as you were talking about rich you know you could be any one of the the corpses along the way because you've you've gone hollow you've given up um and so that sort of that is part of the reason why it's such a challenging and at times uh, dismaying <laughs> experience because uh, it's it's engineered to induce dismay and and to make you want to give up um and so I, 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 I'm not like really into inverted commas difficult games in other contexts, but it is. It could be that Mortal Shell has something interesting to say about difficulty, or at least it structures its challenge in an interesting way. In that it is uh, initially very difficult, um, at least when you're getting to grips with the uh, your your parry and your hardening skills, um, and enemies of all types are incredibly lethal and yet you only sort of need to get like one upgrade maybe or, or one sort of like, even just like a, a realization of how you use the hammer and chisel and and actually the enemy's health bars are such that you can wail on them and they won't be able to land a single blow before they're dead in the second area. Uh, and suddenly it, it flips from being this uh, incredibly challenging experience where you're edging around corners and trying to kite enemies one at a time um, to being not quite trivial because still if you take if you fluff it and take damage, it's still a bad, bad news. But um, it, it, it's it's almost like it's it's sort of like an accelerated version of that Dark Souls leveling curve where you you know th things are really arduous to begin with, and then six hours later you come back to the same arena and it's a pushover, and that seems to happen across the course of maybe an hour, 
<laughs> uh, in these environments where you realize the one thing that you need to do in order to make enemies a pushover and suddenly it's it's not a challenge at all. To the extent that like you 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 can grind a tiny bit in the second area and you can con- you get an upgrade for one of your characters which converts um, poison damage, which is one of the enemies in that area's principal damage types, into health. So like the, the the difficulty just flips almost instantaneously when you when you get to that, and I I don't know if that's intentional <laughs> or whether that's uh, just a balancing mistake. I have to say I don't mind it though, like having going from something which is really hard and then having a, a, a revelation and then it becoming trivial doesn't feel bad to me actually. Um, but I, but it also may be evidence that the the game as a whole isn't that well considered. I just don't know. I think that's the thing about the thing that I realized with Sekiro. Like the Dark Souls does it really well. Like it, you have a a sense of, as you say, exactly. Like you have a sense of mastery over it. Where you, it's not in certain in a certain way, it is because of your stats. You've just got more health and you hit harder than you used to. But when you come back to a previous area, it's now, as you say, trivial. And, oh my God, I had to have trouble with this kind of thing. But then how much of that is you just being good at it now? Like that kind of mental leveling is entirely on you. And that is when that is done well, that feels fantastic. And that's what Sekiro did to me. It was that, like, I just can't get this. I just can't get this, the parrying right. I just feel I keep dodging. I keep getting hit. I don't understand this. And then you get that moment, or I got that moment anyway, where suddenly it just kind of opened up and I could feel it just kind of opening up. And it was less of a sense of, okay, I, I've now got enough health, I can do this boss. It's not just like, I'm just going to get wailed on all the way through. And it's not like, yeah. now I hit hard enough that I actually can kill these things fast enough. It was something I unlocked in my hands and in my brain. And that being able to do that is a really difficult line to walk. I think I can't, I can't think of many games that, that kind of do manage that properly. So yeah, it's interesting to see whether Mortshell does do it through you know that light touch and that way of saying, okay, well, this will click with you when it clicks with you mm. or whether it's them being like now poison damage is health. You will be better at game. Well, exactly. At this point, I think it was, it's uh, getting better. I mean, the, the, the difference in difficulty was like maybe 70%, maybe six, 60% me getting just genuinely better and understanding how to fight these particular enemies and 40% just getting, uh, uh, you know, a buff. That's a good percentage. Um, well, yeah, and I, I don't think that's necessarily bad. Um, and I think because the environment is so small, um, you wouldn't want to spend <laughs> much more time in them uh, going over and over and over them again. That said, there are enemies who, who like there's, there's instances where, you know, these enemies will do this big wind-up attack and then they just won't close the distance between them and you and they will just miss. Which is actually kind of annoying because you actually need them to try and hit you in order to parry them in order to regain health. But I'm guessing that kind of stuff is, I mean, the reason I mention that is that seems to be like, oh, that's clear and cut evidence that there is balancing yet to be done. There are clear errors, you know, in the design. Um, but I, I think that kind of stuff is easier to tighten up. And there's, uh, yeah, I, I, have, I have good feelings about where this will go. I don't think, I think the claims being made for it um, will probably lead people into false expectations of its grandeur uh, because it is such a small studio and the the size of the environments suggests to me that they will continue to scope down. Um, but, you know, within that scope, I think, you know, uh, well, it will remain to be seen whether, seen whether a, like a part reproduction of 
the Solzian promise is is enough. It does seem like the art and the kind of the presentation of it is going very, you know, it's got that kind of very dark Solzian. I mean, obviously it looks very dark Solzian, but the 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 story being is as epic and sweeping as it seems to look with these giant cast of characters, like giant cast of giant characters, demons and monsters, and these kind of the art reminded me of um, the Polish artist who I always forget his name, um, who does this kind of World War Two and later kind of horrible uh almost Geiger-esque administrations on on humanity and these kind of skulls made out of writhing human bodies and these post oh, okay. yeah oh you um, did alien no but the, so there's another the polish as so a Geiger obviously did that one but yeah, there's a polish artist who um i can't remember his name i guess i put it in the in the show notes but he um he, he did these yeah these amazing post-apocalyptic but kind of post like human things as well that were like uh, looked like buildings made out of, of like bones and people, and it was he, he was raised during World War Two, and you kind of seen the horror of the Eastern Front as well. So it was all, mm. all kind of based on that, and that kind of I think this eyeless, noseless kind of thing is very. I think we've talked about him on the podcast before. Actually, is it? Um, I have no idea how to pronounce the name. Unfortunately, yeah, it's beginning Beksinski. Uh, uh, yes, and his first name is Zilav. I'm sorry, Polish people. Zilav. Very sorry, Polish people. It, it is. It is a lot. Uh, it's a lot of name, uh, but his uh, his his art is very. I, I mean, I love it. It's my kind of like, you know, black metal album cover kind of kind of aesthetic, and it, it goes into yeah, that kind sure. of thing, and it it leans into that. At least more shell the stuff I saw leans into that in the Dark Souls in like huge epic sweeping story about history mm. and time and and demons and legends and stuff. But then also this kind of nice art. Does it maintain that through the game as well, or is it is it a bit more parochial? In, that's a... Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, the the two areas I've seen are certainly all very in keeping with that. I don't. Um, who knows whether they'll sustain it throughout the entire thing? You're not having the vistas is kind of a. I mean, it, you know, Sekiro being a tighter combat game still has its moments where you just go, "Oh wow, I can go over there." Oh god, I can go over there. Like, I don't want to. Mm. It's too big. Yeah, it's very much about exploring uh, those games and and the uh, the promise of a larger world. Whereas sort of more confined st- static spaces, I don't know. I don't know if that'll sing in the same way. But I'm willing to give it a go. Yeah, I'm excited. You've excited me. Jolly good. That was my aim. Shall we do some questions from questions? Yes, please. Yeah. We only have one question this week. Uh, so it needs to be a good one. Um, and it is. It's from Kane. He says, hello. The developers of Deep Rock Galactic added the ability to pet loot bugs and also made them wiggle around and purr when you pet them. This has divided the player base between those who won't kill anything they can pet and amoral monsters, the subject of an ongoing international criminal court referral. (laughs) Comics and memes about the situation abound. What's your position on murdering versus petting loot bugs? (laughs) Personally... I decided to only kill the golden ones and reframe my greed as a kind of anti-capitalist class war, aiding the loot bug proletariat in their struggle against their gold-plated bourgeois oppressors. As a follow-up, what other things in video games should be pettable? Regards, Kane. Gosh, I didn't. I actually played um, Deep Rock Galactic just just the night before last, and I shot up a loot bug not knowing that I could pat it. Um, I think my feeling is that um, you are. I, I, I'm going to go go from the role playing position, which is you are avaristic um, 
horrifically capitalistic um, uh, characters who are destroying a planet um, for um, their own gain. And therefore, I would definitely pat and then kill all of the loot bugs. Are you really doing it for your own gain or is it for the gain of the corporation with whom you're in? in uh, I think you're contracting in... for a corporation, but like, you, you know, I'm complicit, right? I'm totally complicit. I should basically have... asking the question of capitalism there, Martin, as well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, are you really complicit in the capitalist machine which grinds you down? Well, I would, I would go on my spaceship and I'd find a nice garden world and I'd settle down there. Yeah. What do you do on the what do you do in on the the kind of you know in the hub area you know on your spaceship? You drink beer. That's you know that's just hedonistic. You you buy clothes, also hedonistic. There's no sense of your character being pleasant or or anything other than um, a, a self-driven um, scum. <laughs> so I would pet to get the pleasure out of petting and then murder. The loot bugs. Oh my god! You would do both. Of course, is... you get both. Why not? Get it all. Take it all. That's <laughs> what the game is about. Take it out back, pat it in the head, shoot it in the back of the head. And the creatures Jesus that are coming Christ. after you are, um, you know, they're clearly they are, um, they're the planet trying to fight back against your your wicked incursions. They are the goodies, and I'm killing them. They're probably defending the the loot bugs. Such so, yep. Yeah. So I would say. I'd, I'd say role play it. <laughs> Rich, do you have a do you have a position on this? I don't know if you've played Deep Rock Galactic. I haven't, no, but I have, I have a very strong position on anything that is is that kind of family of small, potentially pettable, cute thing, and that is completely pro them. Like I, I have massive problems with this in games. Like I, I, I remember, couldn't I remember with like. It's in the bit in Deus Ex when you meet the woman who talks about the greasy, greasy greasels, and there's loads of rats around there. Oh, yeah. And when she talks about them, uh, I was walking past, and then I jumped, didn't jump, but I walked off a step and landed on a rat. And then it went, eee! And I had to reload the game, and I did the same thing again. <laughs> and I landed on a cat this time, and it went, and died. So both times I was like, well, I can't continue this playthrough knowing what I've done. So I have to uh, have to reload, and I've carried that through pretty much my entire gameplay history to the point when, whenever I play Red Dead and I find anyone hunting, I always lasso them and drag them behind me until they're dead. <laughs> so that's what <laughs> happened to me because I was hunting in Red Dead Redemption, and then someone lassoed me in real life, dragged me behind their horse, and left me for dead. Yeah, sorry. Nice to see you again. <laughs> Did you do you kill Greasels though, um, having been humanized by that nursery rhyme? Uh, the Greasels, actually, I think every time I play Day Six, I always let them out to keep, so they can kill everyone else and get their own back. And, you know, it's that yeah. kind of typically amoral, well, not amoral, but kind of like centrist approach that's just like, well, I didn't kill them. They killed themselves. They got killed in a fight with someone else. I'm all right. My, my ethics are clear. I'm fine. <laughs> but yeah, no, I have massive trouble with any kind of anything that is, I'm so wildly sentimental that anything that is vaguely, like, not even, not anthropomorphized, but like, Pet more. Well, there must be a word for that. That's like turned into something cute, uh, or even vaguely like connectionable. I'm just like, well, I've got to protect you with my life now. Oh, yeah. Couple of think, couple of hippies, you two. Yeah, yeah. I've I've made um I've made peace with the uh, the fact I need to kill dogs in um uh, desperados, which I I normally hate killing uh 
animals in in video games because they um because they are you know innocent by comparison to their obviously also completely non-sentient human npc characters um but uh it's okay in desperados because the dog models are so awful they don't even, <laughs> even register me as as a dog um yeah so, I'm, so worried about, I'm, I'm worried about your your um your 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 uh morality here because because what you're saying is that it's it, you have your own sliding scale of whether an animal is is allowed to live or not and it's basically on its aesthetics yeah how ugly is it um, should it die <laughs> well it, it's it's not so much that it's it's an ugly model judgment on it i'm saying it just doesn't read to me as as an animal or a dog so if, so if like you that. if you came across uh, a, a horrifically um uh uh sort of a, a sort of messed up dog it's congenital problems all kinds of awful physical malformed things are going on with it You'd you'd be fine with just bludgeoning it because it doesn't look nice. <laughs> well, it's like that in Alien Resurrection. It's just you know, kill me. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe that's he's gone. But yeah, <laughs> I'm a bad dog. I need to die. Are there any um, things that are pe- not pettable in games that should be? I got guns. Guns? <laughs> no, they are though. You're always showing them off and kind of. So all sorts of petting going on in... in it should be. In, uh, I mean, it's, yeah. it happens a lot in, in VR. Whenever I play VR something, I always find myself <laughs> stroking a lot more things than, than you do kind of in real life. But, like, you can, you know, stroke radios and Alex and and just, like, various surfaces. The the wonder of... But touch. that's just an affordance, though. I think that, like, that yeah. this game, the game designers haven't said, oh, we should let you do this. You're, they've, you, you are just allowed to do it. I think... I, w- I was thinking um, I would really like to better pet concrete buildings because I don't think. Have you ever have you ever stroked a concrete building? Uh, yes, I think I've I've touched concrete before. But have <laughs> you, have you have you have you tried to kind of absorb its its materiality before? Have you been it's down the South Bank in yeah. London and just seen a nice bit of beautiful bit of formwork and just run your hand over it? Because uh, you should. No. You really should. No. I know you're a big fan of the carbuncle, aren't you, Alex? I, I love the carbuncle. And yeah, the carbuncle. Think, yeah. Control should allow you to be able to um, pet the carbuncle. <laughs> it's like, like in Star Wars, a force pet. You can just do it from distance with your hand out. Yeah, force pet. <laughs> and then, like, your controller could rumble, you know, giving you the sense of its texture. Oh, yeah. Ooh. That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Yeah. What's that? Uh, what's that concrete that's been set against planks of wood and has form, been uh, formwork? Oh, that is formwork. Yeah. Is that? Oh yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely like a, this is now the, the Twitter account obviously has a lot to answer for uh, in terms of everything having to have something pettable now in it. So I guess it's not. We're not a million miles away from that point. Maybe in games like cards, you should be able to, to pet the cards, give them a lovely <laughs> stroke. <laughs> yes. Pet rommel. <laughs> No, you don't want to pet <laughs> Have you what 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 would you like to pet? You're conspicuous by your silence here. Marcus Phoenix, <laughs> I think. Um obviously it would need there would need to be consent involved. Um but um I'd like I'd like to pet Marcus Phoenix and um I imagine that he would 
roll over on his back and you rub his belly and he would, he would, his leg would whirl rump. around. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe he'd get a little bit excited and wet himself. <laughs> Growling like away. Jim, Jim does. <laughs> That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad we've cleared that up. Yeah. Really, that was one of the overhanging questions that has uh, has remained. I don't know how it hasn't come up before. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that was the one question we got this week. If you'd like to send us another question, uh, you can do so at questions at crowbar.com. You can tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. All these recordings are uploaded as videos to YouTube where you can find other bullshit by us. Um, the address for that is youtube.com slash crowbar. And uh, thank you to our Patreon backers. You can back us as well, if you like, at patreon.com slash crate and crowbar. Or you can join our lovely Discord community, um, who are wonderful and uh, are a nourishing presence in this otherwise hostile world. Um, You can find the link to our Discord on our website, which is, very sensibly enough, crateandcrowbar.com. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Alex Wiltshire. I've been Rich McCormick. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.